You end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the And extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist. You think of objects, not as single things, but as being made up of many constituents. You all know I made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what? Uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Hello, everybody. You are on Natural Reaction here for another week. I'm pretty sure it's week 45, actually. I think so. We have done 45 episodes of Natural Reaction, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. Nearly at 50. We should have done something for the 42nd one, you know, like Douglas Adamsy kind of thing. Yeah, I think that was like an off week. I think I was quite hungover that week, so <laughs> weren't going to do anything. Meaning of life, being hungover. So we have <laughs> Izzy in the studio, as always. Hi. We have Nadia. Hello. And we have a special guest in the studio who I forgot to bring up the details for, so I'm going to let him introduce himself. <laughs> hey, uh, my name is James. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Queensland in the School of Maths and Physics. And we are very excited to have you in. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different stuff, actually. We've got stuff for... So you're optomechanics. Optomechanics. So we've got... Basically, from my terrible understanding of it, it's looking at light and making light do things that light doesn't really do in the big when it's when it's big. <laughs> when it's big. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, optomechanics is the science of light interacting with sound. Uh, so, what we work with in our lab are these uh, tiny glass mushrooms, basically. Uh, we call them microtorids. So, if you imagine like a uh, a mushroom made out of glass, I'm with you so far. With a donut around the outside of the mushroom, okay. okay. also made of glass. And it turns out what you can do is you can trap light inside that donut so that it zings around the outside. It does laps. It's kind of like a racetrack for light. That's so cool. And uh, as that donut vibrates, because it's very tiny, it vibrates, right? Uh, that distortion of the donut changes how the light inside interacts with the vibration. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm looking at what um, these microtorids look like um, under the microscope, and they they really look like a, like bicycle wheels almost. Yeah, they're pretty crazy, and yeah. it's really not obvious from the pictures uh, that they are just glass, like regular everyday glass. They're tiny though. They're like what fifty microns. Across? Yeah. So Ooh, wow. if you were to pull out a hair and cut the hair cross section, you could perch one of these little donuts <laughs> on top of the hair. That's so cool. Well, we'll be talking more about about that after the break. Izzy, what are you talking about today? Uh, I want to speak because we got a physicist in the room. I'm going to try and desperately not to make a fool of myself talking about axions. Uh, so you'll make a fool of yourself. Yeah, of course. Uh, there <laughs> That's is... okay. I don't do particle physics, so ah, we can both be fools. Damn it. I was really hoping for your help here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a new attempt to detect axions, which we'll get into the, uh, the import of in a moment. And Nadia. Well, I thought I was going to talk about a very terribly done study um, that was released last year about... Alum- it's my thesis. I'm sorry. <laughs> Damn it, Izzy. Should it, you, know, you should know better to have controls in your studies. <laughs> so Ooh, that's... Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about um, a paper that was published last year about aluminium in brain tissue in autism. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one, actually. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to be talking a little bit about Antarctica and a salad they grew there, which is just a really cute story. And it doesn't say much, but it's fun. And I thought it would be a good one to talk about, considering I also had a debunking story, but I feel like two angry debunk stories in one week is going to be too much. Nah, all the more the merrier. Well, maybe next week. So yeah, your natural reaction. Nadia, I feel like you've got a story for us. I think I do. 
Tell me about your story, please. So, last year, there was a study um, published trying to link aluminium in brain tissue to autism. Now, there are a lot of issues with the present study itself. Um, most specifically, it's just, it's a prime example of bad science. That then gets taken by the media and becomes bad science communication. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, it hasn't blown up as much. So last year when this article was released, I did notice it on a couple of different websites popping up. Didn't pay much attention to it, but now I've noticed that it's kind of gaining some traction. And basically, um, the study, the biggest problem with the study is literally zero controls. Yeah, that's a problem. Now... <laughs> That's one of the bi- the first things. Whenever you perform, it's like science one hundred and one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So whenever you perform any form of scientific experiment, you have to have you have to have controls or something to compare it to. What is normal versus what is this phenom- phenomenon that you're trying to like investigate? Yeah. Now the researcher. So the paper that um, was published. It was published in the Journal of Trace Elements in Medicine and Biology, and it's titled "Aluminium in Brain Tissue in Autism." And the corresponding author on this is Christopher Exley. Now, Christopher Exley has been associated with a few, quite a few, um, anti-vaxxer papers. Why is anybody listening to this person? Well, it's not just him. Also, why is it always autism and vaccines? Can you guys pick something new? Well, they have. Well, they? yeah, aluminium so, and autism, but it's still no, it's always autism, and it's it's always about autism or about like how vaccines are bad. Well, I mean, a couple of years ago, um, thimerosal, which is the quote unquote mercury component that used to be used as an adjuvant in vaccines, was kind of the um, but they took that out, yeah. so they can't get it's mad the big about it man. anymore. It was the big boogeyman in vaccines that uh, a lot of the anti-vaxxer movements claimed was responsible for autism. Now, they took thimerosal out of vaccines as an adjuvant about 15 years ago, yet autism rates are still increasing. And that could be due to a number of things. Personally, I think it's just the, the prevalence of actually diagnosing That's a, autism. Also, we moved away from uh, autism as like a hard binary to like a spectrum. So yes. there's autism, Asperger's, and that kind of thing. Like, there's been a whole raft of changes to how we uh, diagnose and treat There is autism. some other stuff that looks like it could be linked to autism that's not vaccines, because that's ridiculous. Um, so um, a lot of autistic people have um, gut issues um, as well, and they've actually looked at a particular type of as a repeat in the genome that okay. happens more in autistic people, in those in the autis- autism spectrum. I've actually seen a study which suggested that gut flora uh, has a role to play in autism as well. Yeah, it's it's. There's a lot of things that could be linked to autism. But Vaccines have been confirmed <laughs> yeah. as not being the thing that no, causes autism. The thing is, like the the microbiota, like research on gut bacteria and um, your microbiome, are showing so many interesting results these days, where it's responsible for so many things. In terms of autism, we know that it's a very complex multifactorial disease that has, you know, many, like, it's it's a complete spectrum. So we all fall somewhere on that spectrum, but obviously within, like, the normal distribution of that spectrum. Some people are just a little bit further mm. towards the two extremes. Um, but in, in the end, it's all spectrum. So this study was actually funded by the Children's Medical Safety Research Institutes, also known as CMSRI which is actually run by um, a very well-known prevalent anti-vaccine proponent, Claire Dowskin. And 
she sponsors a lot of anti-vaccine research. Um, And it includes people like Christopher Shaw, who is a very big proponent in the anti-vaccine movement and has had a number of papers actually retracted for bad science um, in in these like waves of anti-vaccine research. Seems odd that you can um, go and submit more papers if you've already been done for bad research. You know, like it, it feels like you know, like you've you've done one too many drink driving incidents, or <laughs> you know, you've had you've had one too many children taken away. Like just stop. No yeah. more. If you've had a lot of papers retracted for bad research, then obviously something's up. Now, just because the study was funded by this um, uh, this medical research institute, it doesn't mean that that's like, even though it's funded by like an anti-vaccine science group, Yeah, studies can still be funded by like third parties and you can still have good science coming out of it, even if the people funding it have ulterior motives. Yes. I mean, there's tons of studies that are funded by pharmaceutical companies and it does create some bias but this is why we have disclosure like, yeah, agreements and all that. Yeah, that's a whole different day that we'll talk about like, <laughs> is pharmaceutical companies uh, with yeah. papers. So Christopher Exley, basically what the study did is they took brain specimens from autism patients. Um, they had five individuals who had passed away and they got brain specimens from different parts of the brain. So the frontal lobe, parietal lobe, occipital lobe. Um, So they had an N of five. And these people range from 15 years old to 50 years old. Now, Mm. immediately having five samples of brain tissue (laughs) from people who are ranging from 15 years old to 50 years old is already a very big discrepancy in your sample. Yeah, why wouldn't they have, like, surely it couldn't have been that hard to find, like, either people who are the same age of brain sample or people who are not on the autism spectrum with brain sample. Like, well, that's the thing. So these five um, people were claimed to have um, autism. Yeah. So they were diagnosed with autism. Uh, but they did not have any control samples. So people who match those um, treatment groups that didn't have autism. So they basically looked at five brain specimens of people who have been diagnosed with autism with no clinical um, information provided on those actual specimens. What did they die of? What were the environmental factors like? So there's nothing on that. So what they did is they basically smushed up the tissue and measured how much aluminium is in those um, respective samples. And they did this using a um, technique called um, transversely heated graphite furnace atomic absorption spectrometry. So mass spec, kind of. Uh, A little bit different to mass spec. Basically, it's a quantitative way to measure different metals or different substances in brain tissue. And they did this for the five samples. Four of the samples were from male patients and only one was representative from a female patient. And they took three measurements of the same reading within the same tissue. And what they found is that like the levels of um, the measurements, so it starts from 0.1 uh, micrograms per gram of aluminium in the brain, which is kind of like the lowest point that this technique can measure to 22 micrograms per gram, um, which is kind of like at a massive maximum of aluminium detected. And when you look at the actual table of um, measurements, the variation within these replicate samples, so they took three measurements of like one brain section and they got this number to relate to how much aluminium is in that section. Yeah. 
the standard deviation of those measurements, which means how much each of those same measurements varies, is massive in some cases. The standard deviation is often higher than what was recorded as the average. So basically... Um, <laughs> <laughs> just slightly yeah. problematic. Like, kinda, like what is, what's a good way to describe that statistically for people? So like, the it means your samples are bogus. Yeah, like there's always some inherent variability with repeated measures. That's okay. That's normal. This is why we take repeated measures. If you want to get an accurate reading, you do the same thing over and over and over again, as many times as possible. Like technically, three replicates is kind of like the minimum requirements, and then you get an average of these to get a true reflection. Of Height how would much be the easiest, varies. right? If you've got someone who's five foot, someone who's six foot, and someone who's five foot five, the average would be five foot five, but it doesn't mean that everybody that you've taken a sample of is five foot five. Yeah, and this de- this standard deviation kind of points towards like, if say there was three people in a study of yours, and one was four foot, one was six foot, and the other was uh, five and a half, or we'll, go, we'll say two six foot, make it easier for me. Yeah. Uh, then 16 divided by three, you're looking at, you know, around five point something foot, but like that is not. If your standard, but your standard deviation is so high, you know that the samples are all over the joint. There's you're not a lot really of, showing anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're showing that there's a there's a large v- variation in your samples, which yeah. in this case means that the study's kind of crap. Well, <laughs> it means that... you wouldn't be surprised if you got a negative answer. <laughs> <laughs> like statistically speaking, it would not be surprising to yeah. get a negative answer, mm, which exactly. is not possible. And because they didn't do the same measurements in healthy control patients. You don't know whether something was happening with the machine, whether this variation is just a naturally like occurring thing from the experiment. Yeah. Because you don't have any control samples to like compare it to. And in the discussion section, they say that we recorded some of the highest values for brain aluminium content ever measured in healthy or diseased tissues in these males ASD donors, including values of 1710, 1857, and 22.1 grams per gram of dry weight of aluminium. Those three numbers, 1710, 1857, and 22.1, was one replicate value from different tissues. So those were just the highest. Those were essentially the outliers. (laughs) They're the ones that you strike off the page if you're doing a regular study. (laughs) Exactly. And when you actually look at the table of where those values came from, it's it's crazy because, so for example, the one that's like, um, let me just find it here. But the one that was... 22 um, micrograms. So that was the third replicate, 22.11. The other two was 2.44 and then 1.66. So that was clearly a massive outlier. Um, Yet they're reporting it as, well, this is the highest amount shown in these samples. Um, And they state that there was higher amounts of aluminium in male brain tissues as there was to females. They only had one female sample. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can't statistically compare one female sample to four male samples. You just can't do that. Yeah, it's it's bad science. It's extremely bad science, but this is only, like, one of the methods they did. They then went on to look at brain sections and staining. um, So they got 10 additional patients, all who are claimed to have um, autism, like, on the autism uh, spectrum. And they were fixed tissue sections. So what they did is they stained them using a fluorescent stain called Lumogallium and then performed fluorescence microscopy. So for fluorescence microscopy, what you do is you have a section of tissue and then you basically can stain it with different colors depending on the structures of what you are looking at. Yeah, see how uh, much it glows. Yeah, so see how glowy things are. (laughs) 
I actually technical term. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I love making things glow. This is the the very technical language that you use in a laboratory. Uh, how glowy things are is a very important measurement. It is. It makes me happy making things glow. Like I think that's the biggest benefit in the lab for me. It's like, oh my gosh, look, it's glowing. <laughs> okay, if you want to be a researcher, just so you know, you can make things glow. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so they found they got an additional ten specimens of brain tissue. So yeah. n equals ten, which is still a very, very small sample size. It's better than five. Um, but still, it's pretty small. And also, they did not have any controls for this staining. And they used Lumogallium, which is um, a fluorescent label, which states that it stains aluminium and other metals. <laughs> There's just lots of metals in this person's brain that we have no controls for. This study's is, getting better and better. Is, is that including, like, calcium and sodium? And are they, um, are they counted as metals? Or? Well, I don't know if it's specifically those metals. Um, according to, like, the description, it's just aluminium and other metals. Like the thing with a lot of fluorescent stains is a lot of them aren't as well characterized as we would like them to be. <laughs> this is why you need to counter stain with different things. So looking at the fluorescence microscopy... Whoa, wait, wait, wait. let me guess. They did it. No. <laughs> Nailed it. So when you counter stain, so when you're looking at a specimen under a microscope, you need to be sure of what you're looking at. This is why you include a variety of different stains. So there's a common stain called DAPI, which stains the nucleus of a cell. And then you have other stains which can stay in the membrane, or you can identify certain markers to identify, well, this is clearly an immune cell versus this is clearly like a muscle cell. Yeah. So they just stained these samples with Lumogallium and did not have any counter stains. So when you look at the structures, it's like, okay, it's just a bit of fluorescence and glowing. Where are the actual cells? Are they nuclei? Like, and there's no controls, so you can't even see whether the controls are less glowy than their current, like... Uh, exactly. And the thing with uh, immunofluorescence and fluorescence microscopy, obviously you're getting images which can be easily manipulated. This yeah. is why it, you have to perform everything in such a rigorous way where you have the gain, brightness, contrast, exposure, all exactly the same at the same settings. Mm. Otherwise, it can, it can be very easy to manipulate immunofluorescence data by just increasing the brightness and being like, oh, look, glowing things, where really it's not a real result. And the fact that they didn't counter stain with anything you can't make a judgment call. And in this paper, he goes on to basically say that um, these, like, these are structures from immune cells and microglia and all these areas in the brain where he's like, oh, it's, it's this inflammation response, there's aluminium in here. And you can't say that because unless you have superhuman powers to, to tell what structures are what... It and just if you, doesn't if you work do, like that. Please tell somebody. <laughs> <laughs> just to just to be clear, this whole study just needs to go in the bin. It it really does. And the thing is, why did the study get published? And the journal that it got published in, it's not it's not a terrible journal. It has an impact factor of about approximately three. So and that's not bad. The Journal of Trace Elements in Medicine and Biology. So it's not too bad. Um, it's one. It's an Elsevier offshoot. The thing is. Christopher Exley is actually on the editorial board for this journal. That's it. I'm out. <laughs> Let me flip a table. I'm out of here. <laughs> so this paper literally got published from sending it to review and then revision. It was published within a month, just under a, a month. month. Yeah. It's like the fastest turnaround in the history of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, which is absolutely terrible. And it's just, it's such a, it's a bad paper on bad science. And... 
I don't think that there are terrible questions that you can ask in science if they backed by evidence. You know, clearly he was also involved in the antiperspirant, um, the aluminium and antiperspirant and breast cancer study, which was also found to be pretty false, trying to link the aluminium in deodorants to breast cancer. And it's just, it's making these illogical jumps from very bad evidence and then coming out with these studies. And then you have the people in the anti-vaccine movement being like, oh, but this published study said it's true. So therefore it has to be true. And it's like, well, no, some papers are just bad, even though they get published. Just because something is published doesn't mean it's 100% true. There's a lot of crap that goes behind the publishing process. I mean, this is probably one of the, the, I mean, as much as we talk about on, on this show about how people not having a good understanding of how like science is actually done in the real world in a laboratory, we have even less of an understanding of how science is published <laughs> in the real world and the laboratory. It's a bit of a Byzantine mess from the outside. So I just want to like finish this segment off by saying that the Daily Mail on the 30th of November 2017 published the headline, perhaps we now have the link between vaccination and autism to do with this aluminium study. Uh, okay, so aluminium <laughs> in vaccines, it's used as an adjuvant. And an adjuvant is just a substance that helps the immune response to respond better So it has a longer-lasting effect. Basically, it riles you up for your immune system a little bit. Exactly. And we kind of need those things to make vaccines efficient. And the amount of substances like aluminium phosphate, which is a salt of aluminium, goes into your body in such minuscule amounts that really it's it's not going to do anything. And there have been enough studies on vaccine and autism and the efficacy and safety of vaccines to show that there is literally nothing to be afraid of or worried about. Yes, some people do have severe reactions to vaccines, but that's the risk of a lot of medications. Some people have allergic reactions. But the incidence of that is so small that it's just it's a side effect like any other medication that you can get. And if you're worried, you can get half doses of vaccines. Like I, um, As far as I'm aware, you can get like um, test doses first if you worry that your child would have an adverse re- Uh, effect to vaccines and then slowly build on those but just letting you guys know that the like the amount of people who actually have um uh, adverse reactions to vaccines are extremely low and they're not going to cause autism Uh, the the adverse reactions are not autism (laughs) no and that's the thing like autism is it's it's a multifactorial disease that has genetic components yes your natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we've got Dr. James Bennett from the Center for Engineered Quantum Systems in the studio. I brought up my notes. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. So, um, James, can you tell me? So, we've kind of talked a little bit about the mushroom and the donut, which, if you weren't <laughs> listening to the first half of this show, will make no sense. Sounds like a great like little English pub. The mushroom and the donut. Yeah, it does sound good, Either doesn't it? Is that or a nonsense poem by Edward Lear? Oh, yeah, actually. <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of a children's book. Oh, yeah, mushroom and donut. I can All see three. Them yeah, there we go. Right. Let's. Why don't we make a All children's th- book about a pub called The Mushroom and the Donut, and then we make it in a poem form that sounds like... Oh, anyway, yeah. I'm getting over myself. Now, um, now you, you, you're broadcasting the idea. Someone's going to steal it off us now. That's fine. I don't mind. Registered. Just make it, make it, make it a thing. <laughs> make it exist. If I see the book, A Mushroom and a Donut in the shops, I'm going to be so down. Anyway, um, can you tell me, so again, how does optomechanics work? What, what is it? How, for people who don't understand, 
Explain it to me. Right. So what it boils down to is light can push on things. And that might sound like, what? Because that's not something we're used to in our everyday life. It's not like you walk outside and go, oh, my goodness, the sunlight, it's so heavy. Oh. But light generally, Maybe like, you, don't. you think, yeah. <laughs> I was literally just saying that this morning to just censor. I mean, unless you're a vampire or something. Yeah. But, okay, but, like, even when you think about light in, um, that's the reason why light can reach us, right? Uh, from, like, thousands of light years away in space is because it doesn't, it just goes through things. It can keep going and hit you. And then, so how does it move? Sorry, I'm just. Well, I, I might have confused the situation more than. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of different ways that light can actually pull and push on things, and it can pull. Uh, so the the two sort of main mechanisms are called radiation pressure and the gradient force. So radiation pressure is just if you imagine someone throwing tennis balls at you and they bounce off, it's exactly the same thing just with light. Like the reason that things have colors is that they absorb some wavelengths of light and not other wavelengths right so those wavelengths that don't get absorbed they just bounce off and okay. it's a bit more complicated than that when you sit down and do the mathematics but that's so, basically what it looks like so the people at home uh you have a few different chemicals in your eyes that light up when you get hit by a right wavelength of light they the little chemical breaks that sends an electrical signal back to your eye and your brain interprets that as a color when different bits of light hit objects they absorb certain wavelengths and reflect others. The reflected ones are the ones that hit you in the eye. And whatever wavelength they are, they cause the right reaction in your eye, and that color comes up for you. That's exactly right. That's, yeah. that's complicated already. We haven't even gotten into how light moves things yet. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I mean, in quantum mechanics, it's a little bit confusing because everything is a light. Uh, everything is a particle and a wave at the same time. But uh, that includes light, and a lot of the time we think of light as a wave. And so it really shouldn't be surprising to us that light can carry momentum. Right? The ability to carry momentum is what lets you push on things. Yeah, actually, I think we've talked about this once in uh, one of the spacey episodes, where it's one of the plans for displacing large chunks of space debris if they ever come towards Earth if we have enough warning, is to paint it white. Just go out there and send droids to paint it white because the, the photon pressure will actually oh, really? have a significant deviance on its course <laughs> if, you, if you catch it early enough, because you have hundreds of, whatever, thousand kilometers for, to, for the effect to take hold. If you paint it white, the photon pressure is increased a little bit and you can deviate its entire course. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it, isn't it? I don't yeah. think it would deviate that much. But it doesn't matter. It is. Because it's really far away. Tiny, tiny force over a very long mm. distance. Very long. <laughs> so there's actually a proposal at the moment uh, be called uh, Starshot, where they want to send a bunch of tiny little, little chip spaceships, which are pushed along by a sail, which is about a meter square, and uh, actually with microwaves. So, for anyone out there who's going, what microwaves? Microwaves are just another kind of light, right? It's just a much longer wavelength. It's not something that our eyes respond to, but in physics land, microwaves are just a different kind of light. They're basically interchangeable. Different flavor. Yeah, just like radio is an, another another flavor. It's longer again than than microwaves are. So how do you how what are you currently doing as a postdoc? Let's see if I can get that out there. Yeah, so I am working on a project which is funded by the Australian Defence Science and Technology Group at the moment, 
So uh, does that mean you can't talk about it? <laughs> no, I, I can talk about it. Uh, he just has to kill you afterwards. All yes. right, everyone who's listening, that's it. Turn off your radios now. That's right, get your tin hats on. <laughs> <laughs> no, so we're, we're working on developing a magnetometer using optomechanics. So a magnetometer is just a device which measures the strength of a magnetic field. And you might go, oh, well, why on earth would defense be interested in this? And what are the applications outside of defense, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I never realized this until I actually started the project. But back during World War II, there was this, someone went, hey, you know, all of these battleships are made out of metal. And metal kind of changes the Earth's magnetic field a little bit because magnetic fields like to go through metals, basically. So the field gets a little bit stronger. And they went, hey, we can use this to make sea mines because we just look for a change in magnetic field and then kaboom, there must be a ship nearby. So let's go. And then some bright spark went, oh man, they've invented these sea mines that blow up because of magnetic fields. What we'll do is we'll put a big ring of metal around our boat and run a current through it that offsets the change in the Earth's magnetic field, which is made by the fact that our boat's made out of metal. Whoa. I had no idea any of this was a thing. Yeah, it, it gets even more crazy than that because then they went, oh, it changes the direction of the field. So now we do vector magnetometry where you find the direction of the field as well as the size. Oh. And then kaboom. Oh, so you can detect if they've got the uh, this sort of baffling uh, yeah, arrangement exactly, going. Exactly. It's like a, a magnetic arms race. It was, it was exactly. And it, it ended up they had the whole island installations where you would take in your battleship and get it degaussed is the the term where they would set a particular magnetic field into your ship based on where it was going to be deployed so that it would match whatever the field it should have in that region was <laughs> it got really very hectic uh, so that's the sort of defense history of why magnetometry became a thing uh also good for detecting submarines right yes but uh in terms of sort of civilian applications uh well one that you might like is if you have a giant chunk of iron ore underground, it changes the Earth's magnetic field. So you might like to be able to put a little sensor on top of a drone and fly it across the country and go looking for iron ore or some other kind of metal deposit sitting underground. And in terms of health, your brain makes little electric and magnetic fields, right? And we know how to... Because of all the aluminium from the vaccine. Oh, of man. Ah. <laughs> it all makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you, your brain makes these little electromagnetic fields, and we can detect the electrical part using EEG. That's an electroencephalogram where you have all of these little uh, electrodes stuck onto your scalp. I've actually done two of them as part of research at uni. They're pretty hilarious. You look like some sort of Frankenstein monster afterwards because <laughs> the suction... Oh, they like oh. they actually stick. I sort of thought they'd be a bit you know, nicer to you, but you just end up with like red welts. Oh, no, so most of them are held in with a cap. Uh, on on your head and that's fine but because motion of your eyes the muscular motion of your eyes moving around registers as an electrical signal as well so they have a separate pair of electrodes on your eyes so they can subtract that out of all of the brain signal that's going on wow yeah that's a, anyway no, that's good i now finally know why they need so many electrodes on someone's head <laughs> yeah well, it's also like the brain is pretty complex in terms of wiring. I've heard that, and all yeah. of that. So you kind of need to, you need that sensitivity to pick up what's going on. Yeah, and even then, it's very coarse-grained what mm. we're doing. 
But it turns out that the magnetic equivalent that looks at the magnetic signals that your brain makes, which is called MEG, magnetoencephalography, that is extremely difficult to do because you need to have very sensitive magnetometers and they need to be very close to the person's head and they need to be very cold at the same time. And when I say very cold... Within Kelvin? Are we looking at how cold are we talking at? We're talking four Kelvin. Okay, very cold. So that's four degrees above absolute zero and you would not survive. You don't want to touch it. Yeah, yeah, you'd destroy it. <laughs> and you'd probably get a sore finger. Yeah, you'd probably like rip off some skin. Get a probably. sore finger? Surely you'd do more oh, than that. It's it's, like, it depends how big it is. That's like negative like 200 and something Celsius. 69. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely what remember my uh, I definitely, my remember, I definitely remember what Kelvin is. Yeah, <laughs> negative two hundred seventy three point one five. One, one five or one three? Oh man, oh. that's backfired oh. on me now. Oh. What are you doing? You should have stuck while you were ahead. <laughs> I think it's one five. <laughs> I'll put money on it. Yeah, that's like um, just putting your hand in a minus eighty degree like freezer. It's not fun. Like if you put your hand in there too long, it's it's not pleasant, and you can't get frostbite. Oh yeah. I'll avoid, if possible. Yeah, your natural reaction. We're here in the studio with Dr. James Bennett talking about optomechanics and all things light where light does, doesn't do what you want it to or does do things that you don't think it would. Where light is cool and interesting. Light is literally cool, actually. Oh, is it? Ah. Yeah, so this is one of the really nice things in quantum mechanics land where... Uh, Basically, light is always very cold because it's at such high frequency per photon, like uh, such high energy per photon because the frequencies are so large. It means that light is always basically at absolute zero. See, that's weird because you think that things with higher frequency that are vibrating around a lot more, they build up heat rather than cool down. Yeah, but the, the thing with light is it's not really vibrating in the, in the same sense. Uh, so if you look at going back to to our, our mushroom, going back, yep, right, I'm with you. So if you look at the vibration of one of these mushrooms, it's in the megahertz range. So that means that you're getting millions of vibrations, actual mechanical vibrations per second, and you can calculate the energy that it takes to excite one quantum of this vibration. So like the smallest size of vibration that the laws of the universe will allow you to have. And th- I, I meant it's like a hypothetical measurement yeah it's not a hypothetical so what is the smallest amount of vibration that the universe will allow well it, so it depends on the frequency of the vibration oh, okay right? but it's uh basically equal to h bar times the frequency where h bar is this fundamental constant of the universe called the reduced Planck constant which is like 1.3 by 10 to the minus 34 joule meters it then took us an hour to get into the actual math of it <laughs> <laughs> So you can imagine 10 to the minus 34, uh, and if you have a frequency of megahertz, that's like 10 to the 6. So that gives you like 10 to the minus 28 joules. Then that's the smallest possible uh, vibration in this particular... Yeah, that's the smallest amount of energy that you can inject into that vibration. Mm. So that's called a phonon. You know, light comes in chunks called photons, sound comes in chunks called phonons. I don't know which joke it came up with that name, but <laughs> well, we do need to hire some better naming people. <laughs> I, I think it makes sense. Photons and phonons. It's oh, like it's... homophone. Like it sounds similar, mm. almost. But those aren't homophones of one another. Yes, almost. almost. Well, like yeah, homo photons. 
No. We'll get. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come. Get we'll it. come back to it. The, the moral of the story is, if you look at one of these vibrations at room temperature, right? Room temperature is about three hundred Kelvin. There are millions of these little phonon excitations sitting in your oscillator, and that's why it's vibrating around. It's because there's lots of energy in it. But if you look at light, you never see light just spontaneously occur at room temperature, right? I don't know. I'm pretty luminescent. <laughs> <laughs> like you might see light coming off a piece of metal when you get it really hot, right? And that's that's exactly the same kind of process. Your the energy that's in that metal is being turned into photons, which are then reaching your eyes. And that's why you get white hot metal. Makes sense. Yeah, I suppose you're right. You don't really see uh, room temperature spontaneous creation of light. Yeah. Otherwise, if you turned off all the lights in your room. And, you know, shut all the doors and closed all the windows, it'd still be bright inside and it's not. <laughs> so, wh- so why is that? <laughs> uh, basically because light is such high frequency. Instead of this, uh, remember we had 10 to the 6 by 10 to the minus 34. For light, you're looking more like 10 to the 15. So Ooh. terahertz uh, or petahertz. And uh, so your size of a photon in terms of energy, not physical size, energy is much, much, much larger than one of these phonons. And we can actually use that in the lab to cool down the vibration of one of these mushrooms. Okay, I'm going to jump in now because I think this will be a great uh, segue. What is ultra-cold atom theory? Does it have to do with cooling down the mushrooms? No. (laughs) So, wait. So I want to go back to cooling down the mushrooms really quick. (laughs) Fight, fight. So So the... because of the high frequency, the light. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of how to word this. We'll go back to ultra cold well, no, theory. Well, yeah, I, think I want to know more about. Um, so these phonons, uh, you record them. Um, do you get a form of an audio recording with them, or is it a different type of recording? Could we listen to it in the studio? Like, can you develop into it into a song? Oh, uh, yes, you can in principle. Uh, so what we actually do is we measure the how stretched the mushroom is. And the, the way you do that is you put, remember I said you can get light to sort of zoom around the outside of this mushroom in, in that donut around the outside. As that thing stretches, you get a change in the phase of the light. So, uh, you know, a wave has peaks and troughs. As you go from one peak to the next trough, that corresponds to a phase change of pi in maths land. So if you have a phase change of pi between two waves and you try to add them up, they cancel each other out, right? So that's destructive interference. If they're in phase, they add up and that's constructive interference. So we can use this effect inside the circumference of this donut by trying to inject more light in after we've already put some light in. And if it's still in phase, that will constructively interfere and add up, will get bright coming out. If they're out of phase, they destructively interfere, and we get no light coming out. And so you can look at how bright the light coming back out of the mushroom is, and from in that you can infer how stretched it is, because the phase change is proportional to the circumference mm-hmm. of that, that donut. So the, the music you'd make wouldn't be great, it'd kind of just be like ups and downs. It would just be noise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so some music, people in my noise. lab have actually made a microphone using these things. Oh, really? Yeah. 
it, it's actually pretty easy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for, well, for you guys, so, maybe yeah. Yeah. not for me. So we we're always really impressed with guys in your lab for like twenty seconds before, <laughs> <laughs> before it gets oh, shut no, down. They did it in a much more technical and nicer way than than I would do it. So now maybe just do you want to talk about your super cool atom theory? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, well, I hope not. you talk about the super cool <laughs> atom theory. I have no knowledge of it at all. Right. So, uh, quantum mechanics. We always like cold things. Yeah, because you can't do anything if it's not cold, right? Pretty much. I mean, that's the accepted wisdom, and that's slowly starting to change. We're we're starting to be able to do things at higher temperatures. But more formally, would we say something like uh, at colder temperatures? There is like less noise, less interference. I, I guess that's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, because uh, it's like simply just less movement. Yes, that's that's the really big thing. Yeah, and it turns out there's another thing going on which we don't normally see, uh, which is called quantum statistics. So if you imagine that you had a whole bunch of balls that you could put in a bag, right? And then you shake that all up, so you've got balls flying everywhere inside this bag. That's kind of like an analog for gas, right? If you imagine a room full of gas, it's like having a whole stack of little billiard balls. They're all flying around. Little, like in this case, we've got like a lot of oxygen and nitrogen bouncing around the room. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's just that there are gajillions of them, and so you can't really keep track of them all. And they don't impede you very much when you walk through them. Yeah, you don't want to walk through a whole room of floating billiard balls. That would hurt. That that would hurt, yes. <laughs> Invisible, non-problematic, uh, non... Uh, I, I, look, I, this analogy, I can't, I can't get my head <laughs> You don't want to walk through a room of solid balls floating around the air. No, that's what I mean. I was like, they're not solid in this analogy. I don't know. I don't know anymore. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's going somewhere. It's so. going somewhere, yeah. Uh, so it, as long as these are sort of classical billiard balls, you could imagine putting a label on them, right? Like, there's nothing stopping you putting a label on them or hiring someone to follow around one particular ball and, <laughs> and tell you, oh, yeah, it went here and then it did this and blah, blah, blah. The poor guy comes out with, like, bruises all over his face, like, had a bad time. You have to pay him a lot. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the uh, laws of quantum mechanics get kind of weird when you get down to low temperatures because then all of a sudden you can't do this anymore. What you find is that there are two types of particles. There are particles called bosons, and there are particles called fermions. And uh, they basically behave differently if you try to swap any of them. Right? The reason that that is important is that you can't tell the difference between them. Okay, they, so they behave differently when you swap them, but you actually can't tell the difference between them. Really. Uh, so you can tell the difference between bosons and fermions. Okay. But the reason that you that there is a difference in the first place is that you can no longer put a label on them and say, this is this boson and this is a different boson. You cannot, even in principle, tell the difference between the two. I see. Uh, and the same with fermions. So particles become totally indistinguishable. And when you get to the sort of temperatures where your atoms are all similar enough that they become indistinguishable, these quantum exchange statistics come into play. Basically, what it boils down to is fermions don't like being in the same place as each other. Bosons love being in the same place as each other. Okay. So if you get a cloud of gas, which is a, made of a type of bosonic particle, and you cool it right down... So give us an example of some bosonic particles then. Yeah, uh, so salt 
like sodium in table salt, if you have the right isotope of that, that is a boson. Uh, rubidium, which is basically like a heavy version of sodium, that's also uh, a boson. Lithium uh, is another kind of boson. So what makes something a boson? Yeah, it's all to do with a property called spin. And spin is angular momentum of the particle. So if you imagine that you had a, a spinning top, right? That has some angular momentum, just like a figure skater has some angular momentum. It turns out that particles, just like they have mass and charge, they have an intrinsic amount of angular momentum, which is called spin. And you can kind of think of that as the particle just spins around on its axis. But when you sit down and do the maths, it's more complicated than that. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll believe like you. Like everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of these things, like, if you have a point particle, how can it spin in the first place? Because, like, yeah. how, do you, how do you... How's the point spin? Exactly, exactly. How does a point how spin? Does, how does a dimensionless point spin? So we basically get around that by saying, oh, it's just like a charge, and these kinds of particles just have this natural amount of angular <laughs> momentum. Okay. But yeah, if the angular momenta of a composite particle add up in a particular way, then it's a boson. And if it's in a different way, it's a fermion. then it's a fermion. Okay. But then swapping the two around, does that alter the momentum? So that's why they become indistinguishable? It's why different isotopes uh, of the same element can be fermionic or bosonic. Okay. Yeah. So it all comes down to like that angular momentum. It all comes down to that angular momentum, ah. yeah. And the reason that this is interesting is when you have a bunch of bosons that are very cold, they basically all group together and make a thing called a Bose-Einstein condensate. I've heard of that. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. I don't know where from. So they're, they're the coldest known things in the universe. Uh, they're actually, if you look at like the temperature of deep space... I don't know. Have you seen Jacinta's glare? Ooh. <laughs> no, I haven't. I'm, I'm not on her bad side yet, so... Easy. I didn't know what you meant for a second there. I was like, am I glaring? I don't think I'm glaring. <laughs> You're brutal, Izzy. You're brutal. Thank you. Anyway, coldest things in the universe. Yeah, so if you look at the temperature of deep space, it ends up being somewhere in the vicinity of about 2 Kelvin. And these Bose-Einstein condensates, the coldest that I'm aware of, and this is going back a few years, uh, is half a billionth of a Kelvin. Wow. We just can't make it quite to zero Kelvin, so can we? There's a law of physics that says you can't. Yeah. Okay. So it's like 231.150. A billionth. A, yes. billion, a billion zeros down. Okay, wow. But not, not a billion not zeros. zeros. No. Yeah, sorry. sorry not a billion zero. Nine zeros. <laughs> Nine zeros. <laughs> Never a billion. Our math is off today. Yeah, we're not we're not really going to we're not going crash. I mean, a billion now. zeros would be extremely cold. Yes. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you this. We might give another song after this, but I wanted to ask you before we went to a song, what is your day to day life like in a lab? Or in your particular lab? Yeah, so physics laboratories are always in a basement. <laughs> uh, it's like it's a law. It, it's written in. Like if you if you have a physics lab, it has to be in a basement. Well, not quite, but they usually are. Uh, especially uh, Optics and and optomechanics labs. That makes sense. You want to. You'd want to minimize vibration. Right? Ah. And it turns out that buildings actually sway around quite a lot. When I was in undergrad, I did an experiment with optical tweezers, which is using light to pick up and manipulate tiny objects. Uh, so I know you had an episode on this. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I had to do my experiments at night. 
because just the movement of the building during the day you I could pick up in the experiments. Like traffic wow. going past and stuff. Yeah, just the fact that there were people in the lecture theatres and you, you would pick it up. Oh, That's insane. Yeah, so usually I'll, I'll get to work, sort of do all the menial, checking of emails, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll go down to the lab. And at the moment, we are uh, developing a bunch of magnetometers, which work by coating one of our little mushrooms with this material that stretches when you stick it into a magnetic field. Okay, so you you can manipulate the phase? Yeah, so the magnetic field applied to this material stretches it, that stretches the whole mushroom, and because we can sense the circumference of the mushroom, you can detect the magnetic field. And at the moment, we're really trying to nail down things like the composition of that material and uh, sort of the thickness of the material that we need. Do we need any coatings to protect it from stuff like the atmosphere because it rusts and all of that sort of stuff. So my typical day will be taking a bunch of these devices which have been microfabricated and that's done by some other people in our lab and also down in Adelaide with some collaborators. I'll put them into my experimental setup and then I will try to inject some light into them, look at the output that I get and from that, try to infer how sensitively we can measure a magnetic field. That's cool, though. So you're actually working with things. It's not computers. I mean, it would be computers as well, but you've got a physical experiment that you're trying to see whether it works. It's not like a... It's not all on paper. Yeah. It's not all theoretical. No, it's not all There's theoretical. There's a lot of practical yeah. aspects I, to it. If you'd asked me six months ago, it would have been more <laughs> theoretical. Yeah. A lot of physicists we've had um, do a lot of the computational side of things as opposed to the more practical side of things. I always find actual computational stuff a bit tedious, to be honest. I don't mind math. I don't mind theory. Like if you were to go through my PhD thesis, it's majority of it is theory. But like really heavy computation, I'm not much of a fan. Nope. That's fair. That's a fair Neither place to draw I. that line. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like everyone in the studio is probably about the same here. Probably for different reasons. Though. Yeah, mostly because I'm not good at programming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I don't like sitting at a desk. I'm just terrible at code. I just don't get it. <laughs> and I uh, left the field. <laughs> Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital, the, the show where we bring all the ideas, including uh, books about mushrooms and rappers called Hash Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Making me hungry. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite hungry now. What have I done? Uh, and when we went to the song, what were we talking about? Your everyday experience in the lab, I believe. Yes. yes. But you had questions. I did have questions. Tell um, me about the questions. Tell James about the questions. I kind of feel like we trailed off a little bit on how light pulls. There was a, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, that's been sort of kicking around the back of my head, and I do want to know how light Right, so so we got we got through the pushing bit, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the pulling part, remember I said there's radiation pressure force and then there's the gradient force. The gradient force is what lets light pull. And what that boils down to is imagine that you have a beam of light. Yes. Right? Now a beam of light is not uniformly bright all the way across the beam. Right? The laws of physics don't let you do that basically. Okay. So the simplest kind of like a laser beam or something actually has its brightest at the center and it trails off towards the edges. It gets, it's actually a Gaussian, so like a normal distribution. Okay. 
what that means is if you imagine a little tiny particle, like a, a gas molecule or whatever, that is in that beam of light, that's experiencing an electric field. At So in every point inside that beam of light, there's some electric field, right? Because light is an electromagnetic wave. And that electric field can pull on the electron inside your atom and it will pull it a little bit further away from the nucleus of your atom than it normally is. And that creates an electric dipole. A small separation of charges is called mm. an electric dipole. And an electric dipole that's inside a non-homogeneous field, so something that's brighter in one spot than it is in another spot, will want to twist and move. Okay, yeah. And it turns out that for the majority of what we what we deal with it will actually get sort of sucked in towards the bright spot as part of its like twisting movement yeah exactly oh so yeah it's a light pulse yeah as a consequence of some quite like if you sort of you can sort of lay out a few of those physical properties like the the light beam is a non-homogeneous uh non-homogeneous field and uh sorry the it causes a electric dipole in something else but you can you it would be it doesn't seem immediately obvious adding those two together means that light can pull things <laughs> but it, it, it's not immediately obvious. no yeah. but it is quite cool that it does yeah in a in a relative sense how much can light pull like what is its capabilities of pulling <laughs> like mm. i don't know if that makes sense but how much light would I need to pull my car? <laughs> Way too much. A sun? <laughs> like one sun? It'd be more than a sun, wouldn't it? Like, otherwise, like, if you were close to the sun, it would just pull you in. Like, or just burn you to a crisp. I mean, yeah, so there's sort of two, two things that limit how much you can pull with light. Uh, one is ex- how much power you need. Like, are you going to actually just cook the thing? That oh, yeah. you're trying to pull. This is in like so. a hypothetical space where I'm, I can't cook to death and uh, we have infinite power generation. Oh, well, in that case, I, I don't know. I don't think there are limits in that case. Okay, if you've got infinite enough. power. And- what about- you'd have to do like a laser's amount of like, like I'm imagining like these crazy powerful lasers that work for like two seconds and have like, you know, a huge amount of energy. That would, you'd need like more than that. Like... If you want to see crazy powerful lasers, uh, I, I do. Look up the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore Labs in the U.S. Uh, they're studying nuclear fusion. Oh yeah, this is what those are the lasers they use to get like it's a cubic centimeter to whatever thousand degrees Celsius. Uh, it's absolutely insane. See, I just met. I'm imagining like oversized giant like laser pointers, like the ones you get as a kid, just on a really <laughs> massive scale, like a bus size one of those. It's actually just a hundreds of thousands of magnifying glasses and a normal laser pointer. <laughs> <laughs> so if we had to go down to like a small micron scale, like say um, the the mushroom donuts, mm-hmm. how much light would we need to like pull that? So well, that's about yeah, that's a small micron. That's a, that's a human hair ish, yeah. smaller than. Yeah, so for something like that, you would probably be looking at about 100 milliwatts. So really not much. Yeah, that's not too bad. Okay. That's doable. That's So typical like optical tweezers experiments will be in the, the milliwatts range. Okay. And to put that in perspective, one of your little red laser pointers that you sort of, you know, would 
buy for, for lolzies. Uh, they are under a milliwatt. One of those really bright green laser pointers that is barely legal, <laughs> they're about three milliwatts. Okay. And there's sort of two things going on there. One is that they're much more powerful. And the other is that your eye is way more sensitive to green light than it is to red light. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why they look so bright. But uh, anything above about three milliwatts, you're going to start burning your retina. Don't look into lasers. Yeah. Yeah. So that that should give you an idea of the sort of power scales we're talking about. Mm. Mm. Okay. So you got to watch what you're doing with those optical tweezers. You might have someone's eye out. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, both of my bosses have retinal damage from oh, really? from lasers. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Oh, mm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure safety glasses are like typical OHS when working with those things. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, he says that. I, I I have a feeling that he's not always good with his safety lines. <laughs> uh, so uh, we work mainly with optical fibers in our lab, and optical fibers are fairly forgiving when it comes to to lasers, because uh, it turns out that you don't get a laser beam that comes out of the end of your fiber, right? It sort of just sprays everywhere. And that means that it's not <laughs> not, not as, as concentrated. Yeah. yeah, exactly, not as concentrated. But uh, when I started, there was an older fellow. He's an uh, emeritus professor nowadays. Uh, named, for those of uh, you playing at home, that means like his position is eternal. Basically. Yeah, but yeah. He doesn't basically. get paid. No, it's it's an honorary. Yeah, yeah, it's just an honorary professorship. It's like, hey, you did really good, but it's easier to get paid if oh. you have emeritus status, I imagine. Or I don't know. I don't have it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, he had been around in the 60s when they invented lasers, and he'd been working at UQ in, in the 60s on pulsed ruby lasers. And he said, yeah, yeah, you can you can hear the back of the people's eyes pop. <gasps> oh, no. Uh, if you cop one of those without a pair of glasses on. So. Oh, my gosh. Oh. I don't think I'd be able to not wear glasses in those kind of... Like, you'd hear one pop and you'd be like, well, I'm never taking these off. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> like, wearing them to bed, the, you know, go in the shower. The back of the eyes pop. I mean, it just... It made a sound. Yeah. For me, that's like the most like horrible thought is the actual fact that you could hear it pop, not the yeah. popping. That's <laughs> not great. Not ideal. No. Well, I guess it's kind of like um, in the lab, sometimes we use um, UV, like ultraviolet mm. light, to image gels and then have to cut the bands out of gels. And you have to wear these like orange glasses to minimize the amount of UV exposure into yes. your eyes. If you look at it without it, it definitely will most likely hurt, but I don't think it would cause that amount of damage. No. UV, if I understand correctly, is mainly absorbed by your cornea. So it's not Ooh. even going to get to the back of your eye. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Good times. The the UV exposure for the gel stuff is more about like your standard stuff. You, know, you don't want to repeatedly scold yourself with UV light. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good and, and just to clarify... That we haven't had an injury in like the last nine years. <laughs> just, just to be clear, UQ, so you've got one of those um, things up where it's like you know seven hundred million days without, yeah, 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 without exactly. incident, and then uh, it goes back to zero. <laughs> um, we might put on. I, I, we really need to talk about other stuff because we're at uh, we're an hour and a half now, so oh. we've got twenty minutes, twenty five minutes before we uh, need to wrap up. So, anyone's got any final burning questions for James here? Go on once. Going twice. So what's the coolest thing about Bose Eyes and condensates? The temperature. 
Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the coolest thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry, I had to put that oh, one in. Oh, nah, sometimes you walk out with your hands down, just <laughs> cop one. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, you definitely deserve yeah, that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so, um, Izzy, I think you've got a really short story for us to talk about. Yeah, okay, real short. Uh, so, there is another big attempt to try and find what is dark matter again. Well, another, 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 another attempt. These are a bunch of different experiments going on at once. Uh, real quickly because dark matter is a kind of confusing thing, and I'm glad we've got a physicist in the room to tell me when I'm wrong. Uh, dark matter is because like, people sort of have a difficult understanding of why and what that is and why we're talking about it. The universe doesn't add up. Yeah. Basically, if you look at like all the visible matter, the normal matter, uh, there's like not enough mass to hold everything together. Sounds and, about right. Yeah, and like, or there's not enough mass to account for some of the effects we see. Like sometimes, because as we're talking about, gravity can bend light. Uh and mass can bend light. Uh, well, gravity bends light. And we see gra- what we call gravitational lensing around some huge cosmological bodies where like, the gravity itself bends the light. And if we look at all the mass that's supposed to be there through normal matter, it doesn't seem like there's enough. Yeah, they don't match up. Yeah, so there needs to be something else. And basically that's what that phenomena of whatever that something else is, is labeled dark matter. And, and dark energy. And dark energy. But that's like subtly different things. But uh, basically, it's like a whole phenomena that people have various ideas of what it could be and how it could, uh, how something could fill that void. Uh, and one of those is axions, which are a hypothetical particle. So, like a, again, a particle theorized to exist uh, that was originally proposed a few uh, 30 years ago 30-ish years ago as a solution to the charge parity the strong charge parity problem uh, which as far as I can tell with my very basic understanding which I hope again will be corrected is that as far as we can tell if you say you had like a mirror universe where all the everything's like just mirrored you could replace all of the charges with the opposite charge of every particle with opposite part with opposite charges and the laws of physics as we know them should still keep ticking over, but there's no real explanation as to why they should. And, uh, yeah? Yeah, basically the laws of physics look different in a mirror, so you can't just flip everything around. You have to flip things and change charges, and there's a whole bunch of different transformations that people look at in, in field theories where you sort of think about flipping the direction of time and all sorts of things and see which versions of these transformations leave your equations unchanged. Yeah. Yeah. Unchanged or broken, depending on which one they are. And, uh, the axiom was sort of proposed as a, as a solution to that, uh, by, and I'm sorry, this, the pronunciation is going to be terrible. It's like Perche and Quinn theory. Uh, but it could also, jump jump into this uh this little gap in the universe well in a gap in our knowledge of the universe we call dark matter uh by being one of these undetectable uh, undetectable bits of matter that makes up some of this mass and the real story behind what i'm trying to tell you to talk to you about here is uh they've developed how haloscope which is like something that you can use to try and detect these things that is more sensitive enough that we might be able to actually start detecting a few if they exist in the next few I years. I mean, we've been trying to detect it for a while and we haven't been able to do it with anything yeah. that we've done so well, far. Well, no, but this the 
the big step forward here is that like with this tech we're looking at it uh basically what happened is it's a new way new ways of eliminating thermal uh noise so again what we're talking about like you need to cool things down and keep things cool new refrigerations really help with that make sure there's no uh first years in the lecture here the <laughs> above you yeah no one likes first years <laughs> sorry first years. we love you, no. you. <laughs> We love you. Scum. That's we, a we bit love you, much. but you're also scum. It's just <laughs> no. a lot of them, and everything in large numbers is not great. Yeah, well, basically, also for air, they take up too much. <laughs> right, the reason, no, even even too much oxygen or carbon would be bad. The reason we don't like first years is because they take up the parking, and then you, it's <laughs> impossible to get to the university when you want. You anyway. have to wait in line for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, so and they've also managed to eliminate uh, like some other me- mechanical noise from the uh, the actual electronics of the machine, because what you expect is if you can change the resonance of a, of the chamber, there should be a point where axions convert into photons at a at an increased rate. So you should be able to detect a sudden a sudden jolt of like oh there's some photons coming out of here as you slowly scroll through different resonances in your telescope, kind of like ticking over slowly in a radio from channel to channel when you don't know what the actual station you're looking for is. And it looks like we can finally have... The, the technology we have now seems to be capable of theoretically doing that. So we might so when do a, we when do we find out whether dark matter exists? Well, is, if axions are dark matter, uh, years. Oh. Unless, you know, they get really <laughs> lucky and they find it tomorrow or something. That could happen, but unlikely. In which case, the uh, show, when it airs, will be completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now I've said that it might happen. Yeah. Uh, that's as quick as I can go through that, and it was terribly done. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, finding out about Dark Matter and Axions tomorrow, like, <laughs> yes. when they go live. It's going to be great. Um, okay, real quick, I'm going to quickly jump on this salad before we Jump on the go. salad. <laughs> because, I don't know, it's cute. It's like, so these, a, bun- a bunch of researchers from a research group called Eden ISS, that's what the lab's called, um, produced a, just created, harvested, I should say, a bunch of their vegetables. They had 3.6 kilograms of salad greens, which, by the way, is a lot of salad greens. Like, you get like 500 gram packets so- from the shops. These greens were grown in Antarctica. Yes, they were grown in Antarctica with no soil. Um, they had air. They didn't have any <laughs> soil or like actual natural daylight. Um, and yeah, they they managed to grow a bunch of cucumbers as well. Like so they were growing like hydroponically. No, they were raised entirely on love. So they weren't. <laughs> they weren't actually hydroponics. It was it was similar to hydroponics, but it wasn't quite. They they use a system that's similar to that, but not entirely. It's interesting. It's Are like, they still cultivated, like, in water? Yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 cultivated in water. Um, but the the thing is with this is that... So the reason why they're doing this is they're doing it to try and create more and a variety of more types of, um, types of animals, types of vegetables and fruit that you can have if you were to go to Mars or the moon or somewhere where you're doing something or interesting. Just, just kicking around in space. Yeah. Where you require space salad. Where you need vegetables. And I mean, but I, I have a problem with this, right? Because, like, the amount of energy it takes to make one thing of lettuce for the amount of calories that you get for one lettuce is tiny. And I mean, I know that it's more for animals because they have to eat the veg- the vegetables and then have, like, a higher calorie density of food. But, like... But isn't this a way also to reduce the amount of energy put into cultivating like lettuce yeah of course but lettuce to i don't think lettuce to me is ever going to be a calorie like 
it's going to be worth it in calories for the amount of water. It's, it's never going to be a carbohydrate staple. Yeah, like you know, tomatoes, like bigger potatoes. vegetables, potatoes, bread. Potatoes is a really big Com- one. Yeah, mm. So growing wheat, wheat would be one. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's exciting and it's awesome that they they want to be able to harvest four to five kilograms of vegetables a week, which is amazing. And they're growing, you know, strawberries and all this other stuff and a bunch of different vegetables. But I don't, I don't know. I think lettuce. lettuce is just easy, especially for establishing like a new method or way of cultivating these greens and harvesting them. Lettuce is relatively easy to grow. So if they can perfect that, mm. then hopefully they can apply those methods to more calorie and nutritionally dense veggies. Lettuce also is really easy to grow in hydroponics. Mm. They mostly water, yeah. so therefore they will grow in water. I was going to say that baking bread in space would be cool because there's been no gravity, so it would rise in every direction. What about the flour Sorry, growing the, everywhere? Yeah, obviously that would suck. But like, I mean, if once you've got it in the thing, like if you had it in an oven, it could like have a, a sphere of bread <laughs> as it rises in every direction. But not if it's in a container; it'd still go upwards. If it's in a container, yeah. But like, just you're gonna, just going to put a bowl into an oven and see what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd do that. <laughs> That's pretty but cool. wait, how would it work in the oven? Like, how do you You're keep like, it... you got to keep it stable. <laughs> yeah, how do you keep it stable in the oven? It's just going to... I don't know if we have ovens in space yet. I'm sure you could, like, hold it down. You could, like, put like connect a, it. Put a skewer through it or something. Oh. Yeah, that's mm. a good question. But like, Who knows? You, Th- those you, are problems for astronauts even if you put it in a tr- Even if you put it in something in the oven, that thing would still float around in the oven as well. Yeah, I'm stumped. <laughs> I, I think am space stumped. ovens aren't there yet. I, are you saying they're not ready for it? By then, <laughs> by then we might have artificial gravity. <laughs> I, 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 don't I yeah, yeah. No. I was gonna say I really doubt that one. No. No, I, li- I like the um, cold Antarctic salad growing story. Yeah, I think it's cool. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's awesome. But it, it's just one of those things. I don't know. Capsicum, maybe herbs. Yeah, herbs are a good thing to grow because you can actually increase morale. <laughs> increase morale in space with a sprinkle of time. Yeah, <laughs> unlike that cucumbers, make me feel that just increases like your air conditioning load. <laughs> no, well, cucumbers are alright. I just <laughs> I have a problem with lettuce. All right, I don't well, like it very much. But if you're going, I feel re- like it's really needy. If you're growing really fast in space, and you're growing herbs, you would experience time dilation. <laughs> um. So, what have we talked about today? We've talked about salad in Antarctica. With yeah. Long talks about optogenetics. Optogenetics. Sorry, optomechanics. Close, close. Optogenetics. I wonder if that's a thing. It is a thing. It is a thing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wait, I don't think we've got enough time to explain it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to Google optogenetics after the show. I spoke about bad science from the anti-vaxxers. Just, like, it's terrible science. It's not even like there's one thing wrong with it. It's just everything is crap. It's almost like the people who made it don't really care. Or they just don't care about, you know, proper science, like having controls, like the the fundamental thing of any science experiment. Controls. Controls do help. They yeah. do. So you've been listening to Natural Reaction for the last two hours. Thanks, everybody, for, for listening in. Um, you can listen to us on the podcast. You can also listen to us on the Natural Reaction site. Some weeks, it's a bit dodgy, honest. I'd probably just listen to the podcast if you don't catch it live. Otherwise, we also uh, distribute ourselves in smoke signals and, <laughs> and uh, by carrier pigeon. You know what? I'll even um, I'll even come to your party if you pay me. <laughs> I'll wear a clown suit. No, I won't wear a clown suit. I will. 
Okay, well, Izzy's probably better than I am. <laughs> we have to get out of here. You're an actual reaction. Thanks, everyone, listening. James, thank you so much for coming in. We Absolute really appreciate pleasure. having you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Um, and everybody who's listening, thanks for listening. You're an actual reaction. And we'll see you all next James, week. Do you, want, do you want a shout out for your book, James? Oh, yeah, quick. Oh, it's so mercenary. Yeah, uh, well, prefrontalpress.com. I wrote a fantasy novel. Yeah, read some. <laughs> support independent fantasy people. Especially people in Brisbane. And yeah. I'm writing a sci fi. Yeah. Oh, okay. What, what's the sci-fi one about, real quick? Oh, it's it's still very early on. Okay, I won't so. I won't make you nail it down. <laughs> but keep keep an eye out for James's new book whenever that releases in the next years. Don't hold your breath. Prefrontal <laughs> publishing. Prefrontal publishing. Natural reaction here on Z Digital. Bye, everybody. Bye. See ya.